What's up everyone? Back today with another episode. This one is going to be all about personal finance. Super, super excited because I think we learn a lot about some really hard stuff in our training, but unfortunately we don't know that much about personal finance. And I think given the amount of student debt that we have combined with our income potential, it's really important as young doctors to get control of your money. So I'm bringing you an interview today with Ryan Inman. He is the founder of the Financial Residency Podcast. He is also the owner and founder of Physician Wealth Services, which is a fee-only financial planning firm that he created to help physicians with their finances and position themselves for a bright financial future. His goal is to provide trustworthy and unbiased financial advice to dedicated and hardworking physicians. And I think he really does that and you'll get a lot of great information from today's podcast. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Welcome to the White Coat Academy podcast, your source for all things personal and professional development as a new healthcare provider. Join me, Dr. Emily Funk Reynolds, as we navigate the challenges young doctors face in treating patients today and work to better ourselves beyond our clinical care. Hey everyone, we're here on the podcast today with Ryan Inman of the Financial Residency Podcast. Ryan, thanks for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is going to be really fun. Yeah, I think we have a lot of really great stuff to cover. Um, but before we jump into it, why don't you tell everybody just a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, so uh, my name is Ryan Inman. I run uh, and host of the Financial Residency Podcast, and I am a fee-only financial planner, and I work with physicians all across the country. And I'm married to a pediatric pulmonologist. She, Her name is Taylor. She works for the U.S. Navy here in San Diego. And uh, we've been together since we were 18, so... That's undergrad, uh, you know, medical school, three years residency, three years fellowship. So I joke with her all the time and say, I feel like I have the M and MD or the B and MD, <laughs> however you want to do it. But uh, she doesn't think that's that funny. You know, I've been here the whole time, uh, you know, and so I'm friends with doctors. I work with all doctors, married to one. So I feel like I'm kind of in the club, a little on the outside. But um, yeah, and just, you know, the whole the whole podcast is around educating physicians on personal finance. You know, it's so funny because I, my husband is actually my high school sweetheart. So he's been with me through the whole journey. Um, and he probably feel his pain. Yes. He's sat in on way more dental conversations than he probably would like, but. <laughs> and then in the, like the graphics that you guys start to say, like you get really detailed and <laughs> I have like a visual brain. So then, and, you know, they're like, oh, and we tapped this kid's head. And I was like, you did what? Oh God. Like, that sounds horrible. Like, I know, yeah. yeah, you forget that Most non-medical people get grossed out and I, I try to stomach it, but it's sometimes difficult. Well, you know, it's funny because he is in kind of the finance space and I often say that, you know, he doesn't know what I do and I don't know what he does. And I think that kind of brings us to why we're here today is like, I think as doctors, we really don't know very much about personal finance. Um, and I'm guessing that you found that to be the case as well with your experience uh, interacting with doctors along the way through your wife. Um, but what do you think, obviously you have a personal connection to it, but what do you think are some 
of the things that differ about, you know, personal finance for doctors versus just other working professionals? Yeah. So if you think about when other working professionals, they finish undergrad at 22, and maybe if they get a graduate degree, that's 24. And then they're off working, whether they're making 50K or 150K, it almost doesn't matter because they, one, didn't rack up as much debt as physicians do. Um, our average client's at $290,000. So if you're around that, it's normal. That's very typical. I'm talking like hundreds of physicians that we work with. If you're around that, you're in kind of a normal camp, um, whereas undergrad is significantly less than that. And then they're working for another six, eight years until you guys are out and done and actually practicing and earning the money that you deserve. So other professionals have this huge lead time to not only figure out how money works, how to budget, how to invest, but then their investments are compounding that whole time. They're putting money in their 401ks, they're putting money in their IRAs, where you guys are still taking debt out. So it's very different um, from that standpoint because doctors have a lot of catch up to do. Now your incomes are usually more outsized than other professionals, but what typically happens is that you see all your other friends that didn't go into medicine start their families, start their lives, get new cars, buy houses, and you're still driving the old crappy car, you're still renting the apartment because you're still moving around, um, going through training. And then when you finish and you're getting paid what you're worth, all of a sudden you want to match your lifestyle to what everyone else has been doing, which is completely understandable. The problem is, is that you tend to go overboard. I call it lifestyle inflation. Because <laughs> you tend to go overboard and you're like, well, I want the new car, the new house, and all of this, and I want to go on a nice vacation this year because now I make money. And human behavior is once you get used to something, it's hard to dial it back. So that lifestyle kind of inflation really ramps up right as you become an attending and you don't get the, beha the, the good behaviors of, you know, actually starting to invest, understanding that a budget isn't restrictive, um, you know, how all these things kind of work together. So it's very different um, from from not only the time standpoint, but the mindset around money. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. I think something really important that you touched on is that, you know, the age difference. And a lot of us, I think, are, you know, coming out of medical school and residency, already married. Some people even have kids. So it's really different than, um, you know, someone who's just graduating from college. I guess along with that, you kind of mentioned, you know, the lifestyle inflation and everything, but what do you think are the major things that you consistently see working with clients um, that doctors have that might be misconceptions about money or money management? Yeah. So I think if we were to talk like actual misconceptions, most physicians think that they can't do it, right? Even you hinted at it at the very beginning, like I know this, you know that, and I don't know what you're doing. Well, I can tell you that you listen to a bunch of podcasts, you read a bunch of books, like high quality content, you will get this stuff. It's not rocket science. What you guys do is significantly harder than what we do. The difference is, is that you're taking the time to perfect your craft, whereas we're taking the time to perfect ours. And a lot of times what we're doing isn't, there's no black box. It's not revolutionary, but we're providing an objective third party opinion to something and helping put things into perspective without emotion. And that is usually why advisors are preferable versus 
doing it yourself, but not everyone needs an advisor. I want to state that like way up front because um, I, I firmly believe not everyone needs one, uh, but there are people who do. But the mindset around I can't do this and it it, it, it isn't the case. Like you guys are some of the smartest people in the planet. Like you will get this stuff. It's just do you want to take the time and effort in your free time, which you have very little of, to go and understand how it all works and to put it together. There's some people who love it and there's some people who hate it. And so if you're one of the ones that love it, awesome. Go listen to a couple podcasts, read a couple books, find a couple good blogs that actually talk about money um, without trying to push a bunch of products on you and you're set. If you're on the other camp, don't get you know kind of taken to the cleaners and trust everyone because the financial industry is honestly stacked against you. And that's one of the big differences also between other professionals and physicians is that doctors have this target on their back because they know you're highly educated, but not in finance. You were never trained in anything rem remotely close to finance and you have high incomes. So you have someone who's maybe a little naive about money and makes a lot of money. Like you're an actual target for all these insurance uh, brokers and you know, pretending to be advisors. And that that's honestly a, a, a big issue uh, with that. The other piece I'd probably add just quickly is the mindset around money itself. So one of the biggest things that we see as issues is thinking that because you can afford the monthly payment means you can afford whatever that is. So take a car. I'm going to buy a $30,000 car. If you don't have 30000 in the bank, you can't afford the car. Just because the monthly payment, because someone's going to lend you the money, you can afford that because your income is high, doesn't mean you can actually afford the car itself. So in the in the book, I actually said, like, if you had a Tesla that's worth ninety k, well, by the time that you paid it off in five years, it really cost you like 110000 You can't afford the ninety. Well, it makes you think you can afford the 110 It's just the mindset change around right. that. That's a very good point. I think that's something that like our minds are not really trained to think that way. Just simple things like that um, to kind of talk over with someone might be some of the advantages to having a financial planner. If you know you're somebody who is not as familiar with the finance world. Um, but like you said, constantly companies are reaching out to different residencies and schools, um, you know, wanting to get doctors as future clients. So what are some of the things that you might want to look out for in a prospective financial planner? What are those kind of red flags? Yeah, so I feel bad for all the chiefs that that are there because they get bombarded and they're like expected to help with their other residents and, and then they don't know the difference between a good planner and a bad planner. Um, a lot of big companies, you're like, oh, I know that company. If you know the company, odds are you probably shouldn't have them come talk. Uh, <laughs> and and there's no such thing as free. Let's like all let's make that perfectly clear as well. When someone says, hey, I'd love to come give a talk and it's completely free. What they're trying to do is to get in front of the audience to sell them something at some point. No one gets up out of bed and is like, I'm just going to do everything for free. That's not how that works. So right. when an insurance agent comes and talks to um, all the residents, they're doing whatever it is. They're not there to just be friends. They have policies that they want to sell, products that they want to sell. Some of those products you need and some of them they you don't. But the earlier they get in front of you as an audience, when you really don't know anything about finance, 
the higher probability that they're going to be able to sell you said product. Now, if they bundle financial planning for free, they're not practicing true financial planning and they're just trying to sell you products. And that's probably the hardest thing for younger early career physicians to understand because you would assume everyone is a good person, like that all industries have some form of the Hippocratic Oath. And that's absolutely not the case <laughs> with finance at all. So just make sure, be very, very skeptical of anyone trying to sell you anything. And they could be the greatest person in the world. They could be your neighbor. They could be your sister's husband. Doesn't matter. Always be skeptical of someone in finance. And the way that you know if someone is going to be doing the right thing is if they will put in writing what's called a fiduciary oath. And it's just very similar to Hippocratic Oath. It's obviously not the exact same, but um, the idea is just that they will never put their interest ahead of the client, which means they don't sell products. They don't push those things and that they will always act in the client's best interest. And very few advisors will do that. So that's, I think, one of the big things to, to really target in the beginning. Okay. Yeah. I think, um, so is that something that you would ask them to do or is that something that like a given financial planner would have on their website or something like that for all? Yeah, I would absolutely ask the planner, um, if you're going to hire one or, or start talking to one, absolutely. It's one of the first things I would ask. The other thing is like, what is your, your fees should be on your website. Like you should know going and talking to someone how much they're going to charge you. It should be a fixed flat fee. And it shouldn't be scaling on investments. And that scaling is called an assets under management fee. So I'll use an example. If you had a million dollars and they're going to charge you 1%, that means that their annual fee is $10,000. That's very typical. That's an average price for the industry. Majority of planners out there will charge that type of fee structure. The problem with that is you think, well, I'm early career. I've got $10 to my name and a whole bunch of debt. That sounds fantastic. I'll go and pay this person very little. Maybe it's a flat fee until I hit a certain point. And then at that point, it'll I'll have more assets so I can pay more. It scales really, really fast. And it is heavily lopsided in the advisor's favor because your account doesn't get harder to manage. You do not become a harder client for that person because you have a little bit more money. Now, if you inherited $10 million, you're going to be a harder client than if you had not inherited that money. But as you're going through your career and saving, you're not a harder client. So, but it, but that fee structure incentivizes advisors to tell you to not pay off debt and to put everything that you can into investments because they get paid more. So I would, wow. I would okay. absolutely ask them how they make money. That, that's number one. Number two is, are you a fiduciary? Are you fee only? And fee only, uh, this one is, they're, they're going to sound really similar. So pay attention. Fee based planners sell products, they can earn kickbacks and commissions. Fee only means the only fee that they can charge is what's in the client agreement. So those are two very big distinctions because nine, it was, NAFA did a study, it was like over 97% of all advisors are fee-based, meaning they earn some sort of kickback commission, they sell some sort of product. And it could be as, as harmless as you say, hey, I need a and an estate planning attorney, do you have anyone that you'd recommend? The advisor says, sure, call Jane over here. Well, Jane, the estate planning attorney, could be paying that advisor a $500 kickback fee for introducing new clients. 
then the conflict of interest comes up as was Jane the best person for me or was it because my advisor made more money? And that's, that's where we start to get in those real gray areas. It's like the, you know, the pharmaceutical reps that come in and buy you lunch, you know, right? Like, they want you to, 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 to basically use their, their product, right? Um, their prescriptions, whatever it may be. And there's that inherent conflict of interest. Oh, well, you know, Bob comes and brings us lunch every week and it's always top notch steak, right? Not really, but <laughs> you, then if it came down to it, like Bob's hoping that you actually would recommend his drug for whatever treatment over a, another generic drug or whatever. And that presents a conflict. So why go to an advisor that would have a conflict when there's other advisors that have no conflicts? Yeah, I think in one of your episodes, I remember you mentioning asking, how do you get paid versus how do I pay you? So mm -hmm. that Absolutely. leads into the whole identifying conflict of interest. And so fee only means that they can't get any kickbacks from any companies for referring you business there, right? Yeah, if I okay. couldn't, you know, if I said, hey, go to go to my account, I think they're fantastic. My accountant, even if I'm a client, my accountant now can't, you know, buy me a, a cup of coffee. Like it's that black and white. Okay, that's good to know. Um, so I think you kind of touched on it a little bit, you know, if you are into it and you do your research, you can, you know, manage your finances on your own. But are there any kind of bigger things that you would recommend getting definitely external help for? Or what are some of the signs that you might need a little bit more help than you think? Yeah, so signs that you might need more help would be if you are just absolutely not going to pay attention to how money comes in or out. If you just are, I, I call it an ostrich, you just stick your head in the sand and you're like, I'll figure it out another day. <laughs> that another day will not come until it's too late and something happens to either your income source or usually it's health related. One of those two will trigger it and you're like, oh my gosh, I wish I would have paid attention to this. Uh, we were just, I was just talking to someone, they said, yeah, we knew we should have gotten disability coverage and term coverage. We knew that it was important and we kept saying, we'll do it someday. And unfortunately they were just diagnosed with MS and now they can't get any coverage. Right. right? Yeah. And they knew it, they knew better. And they, they just kept saying, I'll figure it out another day. Estate planning is another one, like I'll figure it out another day. And you know, it's not, no one likes to talk about death, even though you guys are all around it. No one likes to talk about it still and, or at least their own. And so that's a hard subject. And, 95 or more percent of the people we work with don't have anything done with estate planning and they have kids. So it's, it's really, really important stuff that you need to address. And if you're not going to address those things, you need to seek outside help. If you're a DIY person and you love reading and listening to podcasts and you're, you know, kind of into this stuff, you're still going to need someone to transact insurance. So you're going to want to find an independent agent not someone that's works for one company, but they can go run quotes at eight different companies and then sit down and explain to you, here's each quote from each company. Here's what's in each one of them. And here's my recommendation. If someone presents you one quote, run away. Because <laughs> it's just the probability of that being a crap product goes up significantly. If they're only going to show you one thing, they can only show you from one company, run away. Find someone who's an independent broker that can help get quotes from many places and then sit down and talk with you through it. 
So in your opinion, really, other than insurance, it's pretty much your call in terms of how invested you want to be in your own finances um, as far as what you can do yourself versus what you might need outside help for. Yes. I mean, you can budget, you can, you know, learn about, you know, how you should have your bank account structured. You can figure out, um, you know, how to actually invest money. If you're really emotional, have high anxiety, or, you know, you, you, you're really sensitive to external pressures, managing your money might be difficult, but still absolutely you can do that in a DIY setting. The insurances, so like car insurance and umbrella and home, all that property and casualty, you need an, an agent to do that. You're going to need an agent to transact in like disability and term insurance. You're going to need an estate planning attorney. Like these are things that you can't go do on your own and your advisor can't do. They're not an attorney, but they're going to kind of, I look at it as my job is twofold. One is my job is to be kind of like your P, your PCP, right? So you're going to come to me. I know a lot about a lot of things, but do I sit there and nerd out on tax code? Absolutely not. We're going to go to the specialist, right? someone comes in and is having a heart attack, you're going to probably stick them over to cardiology well, <laughs> solve it. And then you throw them over to cardiology for follow-ups, right? You're not going to be handling that as an internist. So like we look at that as we're that quarterback. The other one is like, for the most part, I protect your money from you because I'm that independent third party that's preventing you from doing something stupid with your money. Cause, and it's not just doctors, like everyone, we're all emotional. And if you don't have a bunch of rules that you're following around your investments and you strip emotion out of it, it makes it difficult. And if you can't do that by yourself, then you need to have someone help you. But if you're diligent and you know, you're focused and not emotional with your money, then you can absolutely do it. So if you are one of those people that wants to, you know, take this on and DIY, what are some of the things that you would suggest that new doctors do right when they are finally into the real world of practice? What are some steps that you can take? Yeah. So if we were to say you're, you're in training, um, you know, and, and you're working, you're actually making money. Um, the first thing to do is just to understand the basics around how money's coming in and how it's going out. Um, a fancy way of saying it is cash flow planning. I call it the dreaded B word on my show, which is budgeting and like watch everyone immediately ends this podcast. The cringe. Because <laughs> budgeting is what actually sets you free. Like understanding how money moves, it doesn't mean that you have to penny pinch. Budgeting, I, I mean, we have clients that make 30, 40,000 a month. They budget everything because we want to know not just where it's going, but how much are they saving? That's the cool part is once you start understanding how money is coming in, but how it's going out, then you realize, oh, this is how much I'm saving that will allow me to get to these goals that will allow me to get to my ultimate goal most people, it's some sort of financial independence or something along those lines. Um, so understanding, you know, as a, a resident, what you're doing with your student debt is absolutely critical. Making sure that you're on the right repayment plans. You're going for PSLF or not. If you're not looking at potentially refinancing. Rates are at historic lows. As you transition out into being an attending, the things get a little, the stakes get a little higher, I would say. Right. And so you need to make sure now that not just understanding how money comes in and out, hopefully you've built those habits around that because that will help you significantly when you're a new attending and you make six times, eight times more money that you don't go spend six or eight times more money. Right? You're still saving and doing the, the appropriate things. Um, but now we have to protect your income. So now the protection side comes in, whether it's disability, whether it's term insurance, whether it's estate planning, 
whether it's actually getting and upping your umbrella coverage. One of the biggest things we see attending or new attendings forget is to actually increase your car insurance. As a, as a resident, you want to get by with the cheapest absolutely possible, which I totally <laughs> understand. We were there at one point. But when you're an attending and you, you make a lot more money and there's a lot more to lose, you want to make sure that you're upping that honestly to the max that your insurance company will let you and then throw in the umbrella insurance on top of it. Because as soon as you get into an accident and someone figures out that you're a doctor, all of a sudden it's, oh, my back hurts, my neck. Yep. You know, all of a sudden you got all these issues because just because you are a doctor, you are now considered the 1% wealthy in everyone's eyes. Don't, even if you have negative 300,000 of net worth, doesn't matter. Everyone assumes that you are wealthy because you're a doctor. It's one of the stereotypes we just, we will always deal with. And that's okay. Just realize it ahead of time. But now it's about protection of income and making sure that you're doing the right pieces there. So it, it shifts. Um, but hopefully you've learned good money habits while in training to help kind of shield you from making dumb mistakes when you're a new attending. I think, you know, you have your dreaded B word, but I think for a lot of us, the main focus when it comes to money right now is our loans and our debt, um, because we do have a significant amount of student loan debt, a lot of us. Um, how important do you think it is to be aggressive in paying off those loans as soon as you know you're able, or would it be okay to maybe let your student loan payments go a little bit longer? Now, I'm not saying like be delinquent on payments or anything like that, of course, but how big of a priority should that student debt be, do you think? So I think we, this is where we start to get into like the personal finance is personal, right? Mm -hmm. It's what's, what's happening with you might be different than one of your peers. And that might be because they either you or they have bad money habits. Like maybe you've racked up some credit card debt or some personal loans. Um, I totally understand residents when you finish, if you've got 10,000 a credit card debt, 15,000 maybe because you had to go and do a bunch of interviews. You're flying all, well, not now, but you're flying all <laughs> over the place, right? Now it's virtual interviews, which is fantastic. But that would make sense. But if you've racked up credit card debt because you were living a lifestyle that was not sustainable for your income level, like you're going to be at a much higher risk of screwing things up as a new attending because you were already living above your means. You didn't figure out how to live below it and actually like save or just even be breaking even. Um, so if you have a ton of student debt and it's at high rates, I mean, I would look at potentially refinancing. If you're not going to work for a 501c3 and you don't have direct loans, you never consolidated, like if you're not doing all the right stuff for it, make sure you understand how the public service loan forgiveness works. It's not going away. It's perfectly fine. Um, you know, we might see even changes coming to the program that are better uh, because of the pandemic. Like they've already put all federal student loans payments basically into administrative forbearance right now yeah, uh, for six great. months. <laughs> yeah. So, so the interest isn't accumulating. Those payments actually count for, for public service loan forgiveness, which is fantastic. Um, so the program's not going away. And if you are going to be working in a 5-1-C-3, you're working in academics, whatever, that's a fantastic program. Understand that you're doing all the right things. Make sure you're doing all the paperwork. 
if you're not and you're going into some sort of private practice, then it becomes a question of like, what your other debts look like? Are you going to be able to actually save money and put it into your 401k or your 403b? Um, you know, did you have any personal loans that you need to pay? And then when it comes down to student debt, if you've done all the right things and you still have a bunch of money left over, this is where it becomes even more of a personal question of like, how much do you hate debt versus can you tolerate it? And if you can tolerate it, maybe you put money in a taxable account and start investing there. Do you go and toss a bunch of money on a vacation? No. Like whatever's increasing your net worth is what I would be, what I'm discussing with the money there. Um, if you have anxiety over your debt, it keeps you up at night. You're, you're like, look, I just don't like having this over my head. Pay it all down. Pay it all down super quick. Just make sure that you do all the other things I kind of mentioned first before going like this student debt bugs me the most, even though I've got credit card debt and then focus on student debt. That wouldn't be the right thing to do. Okay. Yeah. So kind of, you know, the most, the stuff with the highest interest definitely you want to focus on first. Um, and then depending on what your goals are, you want to pay off your student loans accordingly. Yeah. And make sure that you're hitting up those tax deferred accounts like your 401k so you can get the, you know, the tax breaks now and then it grows and, you know, time in the market matters a lot, right? We get to see that exponential compounding growth, um, you know, the longer that you're in the market. So that stuff really is important as well. But it, it's really that trade-off, you know, pay off debt or invest. I get it all the time. And it's kind of a waterfall if you think about it. But, you know, it, there's no one size fits all. Okay, great. So, you know, I think we've touched on a lot of really important stuff and you've been super helpful. So thank you for that. Um yes. The last kind of thing is if people do want to take more of an interest in their personal finance, do you have any resources that you would recommend or things that you would say to stay away from? Yeah, so the there's a book out that's called How a Second Grader Beat Wall Street, and it's by Alan Roth. And he has a fantastic way for beginners to understand how the stock market works and how you should begin looking at investing tell everyone who's just starting out fantastic book i would have wrote the book he wrote it way better than i could have ever done <laughs> like it is such a great book for like actual people who are beginning to invest um it, it's fantastic so i think that's great um there's lots of podcasts out um some of them are physician specific some of them aren't um i think the physician specific ones are helpful um, but there's also ones that will teach you the basics of budgeting and the basics of just little things that are common to everyone. Um, so as long as you know that it's not applicable, everything's applicable, I think there's some fantastic resources um, out there. And then there's there's other great books, and I can I can email you a list, and you can put them up um, for, for everyone on social or whatever. Okay, yeah, uh, we could put those in the show notes too. Perfect. Yeah, you can put them in the show notes. So there's there's some other good books I can, I can send to you. Um, the Millionaire Next Door. Is, is a fantastic book. Um, and then there just came out the new one, The Next Millionaire Next Door. And that's talking more on the behavioral side of finance. And I think that is one of the least talked about, but probably one of the most important things you can do is to understand how your brain is tricking you and how marketing has figured out how to trick your brain into thinking you need things when you don't really need them uh, and to paying attention to what everyone else is doing when you really shouldn't. Because everyone's finances are different. Everyone is at different stages. 
And I, I think those are also some fantastic resources um, to, to read and listen to. Great. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, if you could send me those books, I'll definitely put them in the show notes for everyone to check out. Um, I also want to say that your podcast, Financial Residency, I think is very helpful and I would highly recommend it to all of our listeners. And um, you also have a book now too. So why don't you tell us about that? Yeah. So the book is um, Self-Tile Financial Residency. It's Create Your Financial Plan Without the Long Hours and Sleepless Nights. So my wife and I, we co-authored it and it was really fun to do that with her. Um, so as some people have already left reviews and said that like I gave the the fundamentals and she gave the relatable piece to it because she was talking about how things were with us and bringing it back into where we were in our medical journey. And essentially the book, if you read it cover to cover, you will actually be able to build an entire financial plan yourself. And then I tackled a free course with it. Um, so you'll have the references inside, but you can go and download all the templates and you know spreadsheets and things that I use with clients. Um, you know, essentially, I'm trying to put myself out of business. Because <laughs> the more people who know this, like the better off we are as a whole. And I think it will help reduce burnout among physicians because I know EMRs stink and I know all this other stuff. You know, uh, is political and it's terrible. But one of the main reasons that doctors burn out is because of their finances. They won't be able to stop working. They might hate where they're at for other reasons and the finances are trapping them there. So if we can help all of you not feel trapped, we're going to have healthier, happier, mentally healthier doctors um, out there. And that will be fantastic for us as a nation. So I look at it as if I can help one doctor, I help thousands of people. That's awesome. So if we're interested in getting the book, where can we find it? Oh, like everything else in life on Amazon. <laughs> yes. Put it. Amazon knows every Google, Amazon, Apple, like they know everything. They know what we're doing. Uh, and Amazon is, of course, where we buy everything. So um, it's on Amazon and it's called Financial Residency. You can search that and it'll pop up. Okay, great. And I will put the link to that in the show notes for you guys as well. Alrighty. Well, thank you so much, Ryan. I think this was super, super helpful for lot of young doctors and i really appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to us today yeah thanks so much for having me on i really appreciate it i hope you guys got as much out of that episode as i did i think ryan touched on some really great topics and things to look out for when planning your finances and enlisting the help of others if you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you could go and leave us a review so that we can help connect with other young doctors and help as many people as possible. Also, if there's a specific topic that you'd like for me to cover, please connect with me on Instagram or via our website. You can email me there and let me know what you guys want to see. I really want this to be as beneficial for as many people as possible and would love to hear from you guys. But that's all for now. I'll catch you guys in the next one. Bye.